0: It's the world's most trafficked mammal. They they should be the poster child for all of these things, for all of these different issues. They should be the ones up there.
1: Thanks for tuning in to episode 12 of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. It's great to have Jack Baker on We Blue Dot today, creator and host of Plight of the Pangolin, a podcast series. Jack has a degree in international relations and affairs, an MSc in conservation studies and a variety of experience in conservation related roles. His podcast highlights the problems facing pangolins today, something which I'm very excited about discussing with him today and keen for listeners to learn more. And with that, Jack, thank you for giving us your time today and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So how have you been and where are you joining us from today first of all? I've been I've been good
0: enjoying the nice Scottish spring which <laughs> is for those who aren't in Scotland, a mix of glorious sunshine and snow within five minutes, so it's been nice. And yes, I'm currently based in, in Dunfermline in Fife and currently working at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh as well. So cool. yeah, that's where I'm just now.
1: And, and before we get into the pangolin chat, um, yeah, um, let's just chat a wee bit about your background and how you got into conservation. I mean, did you always love animals and nature as a kid?
0: Yes yes so growing up I think it was one of those things that all the way through school it was a kind of a dream of mine to work with animals or kind of do something with animals and but all the way through school I was not pushed but I was encouraged that you get a job doing something that is more mm. stable or something there's this idea that you can't get a career in conservation for me mm. anyway mm-hmm. um, and then as I grew up as I kind of finished up high school, I got a job at Deep Sea World, which is an aquarium near me. And from there on, I kind of started to realize perhaps there was a career in this, in talking to people about animals, because that's that's what makes me happiest. So from there, I worked at Deep Sea World for about four years while I was doing my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of my undergraduate, I got to this point where I was like, this is the point where I can either go into an office job <laughs> and sit, um, do the kind of safe career path maybe, or I can do the thing that actually makes me really happy which is animal related things whether that be talking to people about animals or newly discovering my love of plants which I didn't really know uh, before <laughs> so all of these things to do with conservation all these different elements and I decided actually I'm just going to do this so I, I went to uni again did a master's in conservation and realized I had hundred percent made the right choice because yeah it really is It's what makes me me happiest is is this. Thing so yeah, that's yeah. my love of animals, samurai, and conservation summed up in about two minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's no. I mean, life's too short to not be doing what you enjoy. Definitely, and I mean, can you tell us a wee bit about what did your your first degree entail at international relations and affairs? What kind of things did you study and focus on?
0: So it was basically it's a posh way. It was at St Andrews, so it's a posh way of saying politics. Um, <laughs> Um, and it was kind of focused on a lot of theory based on why humans do what they do in the political sphere, why people search for power or certain case studies to do with terrorism and all sorts of things and Mm. it was very structured at the start where it would be kind of focused on very exclusively human issues and I didn't love that so by the end I was trying to focus my degree on things that interested me and kind of apply these theories to different things so for my undergraduate dissertation for example I wrote on the topic of animal rights and how you can sell animal rights legislation to governments and how what might make them more inclined to support animal welfare
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and my ultimate conclusion to that was you've got to sell it as a human issue a lot of the time just to get somebody to listen Mm -hmm. which is perhaps not the ideal way to do it but that is what the undergraduate degree taught me. That and the fact that I guess humans are inevitably going to do the same things over and over again. So you might as well work with animals because at least you can you're helping someone who or something that uh, that can't help itself all of the time. Whereas humans, we're, we can help ourselves. We just make the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. Um, So it was kind of more the politics, but then I tried to tailor it as much as I could to, to my interest.
1: Yeah, no, I did the same. I mean, I didn't study anything like you. I studied archaeology for my undergrad, but I decided pretty quickly that I wanted it to be about nature and animals in some way. So, yeah, I tailored the dissertation towards extinct species and stuff relating to, to early humans um, but but yeah it, it's it's good though, it's good to have the experience and St Andrews a lo- is a lovely place obviously and that's where you went back to do your masters isn't it?
0: Yeah so the last year I, would, I was finishing up my dissertation actually and um, it kind of, it got to the, the Christmas before I was due to finish and me and my family took a trip up to the Highland Wildlife Park which is a park here in Scotland that's got all sorts of wonderful creatures for people who haven't been uh, it's got wolves, polar bears, tigers, all sorts of things that are incredible, incredible species. And I went up there and it was kind of at that point where I was applying for jobs and working out what I wanted to do. And my flatmate had already applied for a master. So I knew that was an option. And I was standing there. You know, the moments you have that are just kind of the perfect serenity and peace in your mind where you kind of realise, hang on, this is, this, mm. is a, this is a moment that's very I'm like perfectly happy. Mm. And it was standing there alone in the Highlands watching the um they just had a baby polar bear born Hamish um, at the Highland Wildlife Park watching this baby polar bear run around and I was kind of thinking this is what I want to do and this is where I want to be so I applied for the master's at St Andrews it was in conservation studies and yeah went back the following September was there until until early last year when hmm. the world stopped moving but still finished the degree from home and it was yeah just the best experience met amazing people there was only four people on my course wow but we all had such vastly different interests and came from vastly different backgrounds it was really interesting and practical elements so we did things like bird ringing we went out and did kind of small mammal trapping all sorts of things to just give us a, a kind of wide array of experiences and it was I would say of all of my university and education career, that was the year that was like the best year I've had.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you made the right choice. Then obviously, if you're, you're really passionate about it and what did you kind of focus on throughout that year? I mean, as you say, it's unfortunate that Covid's hit and you you maybe spent the last few months working from home. But what were the different topics that you focused on, on the on the Masters?
0: So it was quite good because it was basically an interdisciplinary master's, which is why my main concern when I finished up my undergraduate and was, was looking into master's degrees is that for conservation, a lot of them required zoology or some kind of biological background, which I obviously don't, didn't have. I did science in high school, but then beyond that, didn't have any real experience in it. So it was good because it was interdisciplinary. Each week there would be a different topic. So there was weeks where we would focus on the politics of things. There was weeks where we would focus on statistics, which I very quickly learned I hate. But it's very, very important. Um, So you have to get good at them, unfortunately. If you're listening to this as someone who wants to get into conservation, numbers will haunt you forever. So be good at math. (laughs) Uh, um, But yes, statistics, the biological elements, practical elements, as I said, all sorts of different things that kind of came together. And what the good thing was, was it also came alongside the lectures, there was also a training series on communication. So we did things like filmmaking, podcasting all sorts of different elements like that which played to my strengths having worked in a zoo and an aquarium where I'm talking to people all the time and um, it kind of mm-hmm. built on that knowledge which was really really good and yeah that I have said what did you study everything but that's it's kind of a lot of everything that worked out pretty well uh, in the end I think
1: yeah. yeah and and that's how you ended up doing the podcast isn't it we'll come back to that in a wee second I mean and then after so you mentioned you've worked in an aquarium and you've worked in a zoo as well so can you tell us a wee bit about that job? Um, and then we can move on to chat about and stuff as well
0: yeah so first there was the aquarium at deep sea world which I've mentioned before which was great it was busy there was lots to do but it prepared me for kind of any job I think from there on <laughs> Because when you're dealing with they say never work with children or animals and I was <laughs> working with children and animals at the same time prepares you to do anything in your life um yeah so it was it was a really good time and then Once I finished up there, I moved to to Edinburgh Zoo, the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, where I did their summer school programme, which was really good fun. Because at Deep Sea World, I'd had experience running classes for all sorts of different age groups, kids all the way up to adults. But it was always in a a classroom setting. We couldn't take them out to do things. It was you were sat in a room or you were by a, a tank or it was very fixed in one place whereas moving to the summer school obviously summer beautiful weather you could be outside in a zoo with hundreds of different species yeah so it was it was fantastic I was looking after the primary two threes which I think a lot of people think would be the most hectic and chaotic and stressful but actually it was so fun because a lot of people have said this to me that I've got this childlike view of (laughs) conservation of animals that I'm just really interested and so having kids to get more excited with about the animals It was great fun. And we did all sorts of things. So the theme was Asian adventure. Edinburgh Zoo, for those of you who don't know, has giant pandas, all sorts of different species that come from Asia, all sorts of big, charismatic megafauna from Asia. So the theme was worked well for that, for running the summer school, because obviously kids love the lions, love the tigers, love the, the pandas, all sorts of things like that. So it was it was good fun and also got to bring in kind of the arts and crafts elements, quizzes games, it was yeah, it was great fun. Mm -hmm.
1: And now your more recent role, you're at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, did you say yeah?
0: Yeah. So I've now finished up my degree last year. And so actually somebody I knew who worked at the zoo moved across to the botanics and just happened it was while I was looking for a job and I post just happened to post on Facebook, these roles are open. If anyone's interested have a look. And Mm -hmm. and it was one of those things where my my big passion is the communication of conservation, talking to people getting the message out there. Because I've always thought that you can write the best scientific paper in the world, or you can produce the most important, valuable work. You can discover the most important things. But if you fail to communicate them properly to the public or fail to get the information out there, mm-hmm. then what does that really mean? Because if people can't act on what we need to change, yeah. What... so the job at the Botanics that came up was an assistant with their MSc. And so it was helping them convert a lot of their teaching for their, their master's degree into an online format so filming virtual field trips producing interviews for the students to listen to that sort of thing so it it was good experience that um to kind of build on my interest and it's been excellent it's been i've got a lot more experience with camera a lot more experience with interviewing photography editing all sorts of things which and it gives me an excuse to be outside a couple days a week which is always good yeah Um, it's it's really good fun um I think I'm doing a good job. Hope I'm doing a good job. My contract <laughs> for a year, so I hope I'm doing. <laughs> I think I'm doing. Um, yeah.
1: I think though it sounds great. Like we've talked about it before. Um, how obviously the over the last year, the whole world's kind of turned to online resources because we've had to because of COVID. Um, so it's definitely good skills to have. And it sounds like uh, yeah. It's, it sounds like you're right about the communication side of things. So it sounds like you're adding to the list of skills that you've got. Yeah. and it's a, it's a lovely place to work I mean when you can actually go in there the Botanical Gardens Edinburgh are, used to be one of my favourite places to visit when I lived in Edinburgh so it's a lovely place yeah. Moving on to the, the podcast I mean you developed this podcast didn't you as part of your Masters is that right um, and was it affected was it implemented because of Covid and the kind of pandemic
0: Yes so March last year I was meant to go to Namibia to do kind of gather some information do some maybe interviews in person and talk about things because originally my dissertation project was going to be about communicating with people in an area where there are pangolins about pangolin conservation and why it's important Mm. and then obviously I couldn't go but instead of I think there was two options I could either bin the whole thing and find something local to Scotland that would be an easy pick or stick with it and I think the pangolin presented a unique opportunity because a, a lot of people don't realize, but at the start, or don't really remember, but at the start of the, the COVID pandemic, the pangolin was associated with the disease. Um, mm. It was found in the markets in Wuhan, where all of it kicked off. So, But here, nobody knew what a pangolin was. If My parents, when I first told them, looked at me just smiling, kind of, yeah, interesting, good good choice, good choice. <laughs> um, but nobody really knew what a pangolin was. They knew that it was this thing that came from Asia maybe and had maybe caused coronavirus but didn't really know. So I thought let's seize the opportunity and do an education campaign for the UK or anybody really who doesn't know what a pangolin is. So mm-hmm. instead of doing interviews in person and doing this kind of local thing I went a bit more global which was tricky in a way because it coordinating time zones and all sorts of things to get information and taking on this massive amount of information that's already out there about them and trying to condense it into something that is digestible for people who don't necessarily ha- know that much about an animal already was quite mm-hmm. a challenge but i think overall it worked out for the best not only could i kind of do something new and different that i hadn't didn- hadn't planned on i also was able to bring in voices of people that i wouldn't necessarily have thought of bringing in um mm-hmm. so my dissertation project the plight of the pangolin is a a podcast series six episodes And each episode, I spoke to a different person from a different part of the world for their perspective. So speaking to people in Scotland about trafficking and zoonosis, people in Namibia um, Hong Kong, all sorts of different places to just try and get different perspectives on things. And so my podcast series was born out of that initial not being able to go somewhere. But in not being able to go somewhere, I was kind of able to go global, which was interesting.
1: Yeah, which is, I mean, I, I was been saying this to people over the last few weeks when I've been recording that we're so lucky that we have the ability to do this. You know, we can speak to people all over the world about all sorts of things. So it's trying to take the positives of the whole situation. But I think in ways it's brought a lot of people kind of together, as you say, for all sorts of different projects. And it's been a pretty good success and it sounds like you've enjoyed it. So it's, it's all turned out for the best probably. And why did you choose the pangolin? As you say, for anyone listening who doesn't know much about it or doesn't know anything about it, can you tell us about these amazing wee creatures?
0: Yes. Yeah, so if I'm perfectly honest, at the start, the start of last year, I was familiar with it in the sense that I'd seen them pop up in a documentary here and there, but I didn't know a huge amount about it. And then I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And a lot of the projects that were offered up in terms of doing the dissertation were things that... I was familiar with and while they would have been interesting still there were things that I wanted to kind of push myself and learn about something that is a bit different and I didn't know a lot about just to kind of expand that knowledge so Mm -hmm. I went and spoke to the provost of the University of St Andrews Dr Monique McKenzie who works in Namibia with a PhD student um, who's kind of Studying pangolins. We had a discussion early on about the possibilities, the different things that were going on. And from the moment I first got an email with a video of a pangolin, I fell in love. I just thought they were bizarre, cute, kind of strange little things. And for those of you who don't know, so pangolin is a small, scaly mammal. There are about eight species of them, well, there are eight species of them, ranging from vulnerable to critically endangered around the world. They're found across Africa. And Asia. And I'm trying to think of a way to describe them that is <laughs> easy. And I still don't have the right way to kind of do it. But if you imagine an armadillo almost, but instead of with the big plates that cover their whole back, it's lots of little scales that they have. And they also have this big long tail. Like an armadillo as well, they eat ants, they curl up into a ball to protect themselves, and they face numerous threats around the world, which is again another reason why um I was kind of interested in talking about them. Because if there's a problem there. I like to be, get interested and try and think of ways to fix it. Um, yeah. So they,
1: you're, you're right though. Sorry, you're right. Um, thinking about how to describe them when you're just using a podcast, they they just look to me like they do look like some sort of like kids' drawing of an alien. You know, they are they are such odd little creatures. And the eight different types. I mean, do they range in size? Are some of them smaller than the other? And do they look a wee bit different?
0: So all of them look slightly different colorations. All of them slightly different sizes. So there is the Teminx ground pangolin, which is one of the larger species. And then you get smaller species that are arboreal, for example. So they use their tails to climb trees um, Mm. and keep themselves in the tree most of the time. So they all have these subtle differences. There are similarities. Of course, they all have this long tongue um, that they can use to catch their prey. They are all or mostly come out at night. Uh, or keep themselves to themselves hidden as much as possible. They live in burrows. So they all kind of have things in common, but they all are slightly different as well. And slightly, yeah, they're just, it's hard, as I say, it's hard to describe. I, the best thing you can do is l- Google a picture of them because I think that kind of helps you picture it. And also, <laughs> while you're Googling pictures of them, something that they all do, which is very, very cute that you should look for, is when they are younger, they will carry their young on their back, which I didn't know when i first saw them and you don't expect it of kind of this scaly thing mm-hmm. you, you just don't you can picture it with kind of monkeys that have fur to kind of hold on to. Mm-hmm. But for this scaly little creature to be have this l- another scaly little creature balanced on its back is, is very charismatic, very cute. So you should look it up.
1: They are very cute, as you say. Um, you wouldn't think it, but when you see them, and I, even just the way they move and stuff, I think it's really cute. And you mentioned some of them are arboreal. Are uh, I mean, do they live in a kind of different habitats than the different species? Do they live in a variety of habitats or mostly the same kind? Or
0: There are forest dwellers. Um, that will live in the trees, particularly the Asian species. I think most of them in this kind of forest environment. Mm. You also get the ones, Temmix ground pangolin, for example, will live in the kind of desert savanna landscape. Mm. And to adapt to that, some of them just don't drink much water at all, for example. They'll get a lot of their sustenance from the animals or the insects and things that they eat. They just have evolved in a way that they don't need to to drink a lot of water so there are those location based differences they're kind of spread all across the world and in being spread all across the world they do have of course to adapt to these different things which i guess also has a lot to do with the coloration as well so if you look the pangolins that live in the desert kind of savannah landscapes are lighter in color all of the temmicks ground pangolin is like this light brown color um, mm-hmm. and then you kind of have the darker colored foresty species obviously yeah. i don't know how much you can use that as an official thing, but it's something I noticed. Uh, <laughs>
1: no, totally. Yeah, no, as you say, that we adapt into the the different environments and stuff that they're living in. So, um, but yeah, no, that's cool. I hope I'm sure people will be googling them as they're listening to this because they are such odd wee things. Um, what threats are facing pangolins? I mean, I know they're pretty endangered, but can you tell us a wee bit more about how endangered they are and and what the threats are?
0: Yeah. So initially, when I was thinking about the project and what's going on within countries where these animals are what the local threats are you have things like electric fences so it's still kind of upsets to be thinking about it is pangolin when they travel they balance on their back legs when they walk little kind of hands as they walk forward and then if there is for example electric fences up blocking the edge of a reserve or the edge of a farmer's property, if they hit the electric fence, what happens is they grab it and they curl around it because what they do to protect themselves is curl up into a ball. So they will grab the fence, curl into a ball to protect themselves and just continuously electrocute themselves. If someone gets there quick enough and maybe gets them off, it's okay. But the Mm -hmm. majority of the time, if they hit those fences, that's, yeah, not Mm -hmm. great news. The other thing about curling up into a ball is a wonderful defense if you're fending off large predators, lions, all sorts of things like that but if you are trying to avoid poachers then it's the perfect thing for them because they can come along and they just pick you up. You're not biting them, you're not scratching them, you're not shooting something at them like a lot of species do. You're just sat there being taken. Mm -hmm. So another threat of course is poaching and trafficking. They're actually the world's most trafficked mammal which a lot of people I don't think know Mm -mm. and the reason for that is they are taken their scales are removed and they're used in a lot of traditional medicines now I think something that should be highlighted when I talk about this is that I I think a lot of the time people tend to when it comes to trafficking want to blame or talk in country names Mm -hmm. we'll say China is doing this or Hong Kong is doing this or Mm -hmm. a country in Africa is doing this and I think it's important to highlight at that point while the flow of these animals is a lot of the time from an African state where these animals are from because a lot of the Asian species are now so critically endangered, shift they've shifted to taking the African species. Okay. So while the flow is that way, I w- I'm hesitant to, and I think people, when they're talking about this going forward, should be hesitant to use the names kind of China, or kind of say it's China's fault, this fault, that fault, because if you listen to my podcast, you'll know I speak to um, one of my friends who lives in Hong Kong, never once has seen these things. Their family has no idea about these things. So just... Be sensitive and careful when you talk about these issues, because I think a lot of the time there's a tendency to generalize and it can mm-hmm. be more deconstructive and sound like you're blaming people in a way, which mm-hmm. obviously there are people to be blamed, but yeah. to be blamed in whole country can be a bit rough.
1: Yeah, and and I guess it's, it's similar to a lot of things that are, a lot of animals that are being affected by the illegal wildlife trade that... Yeah, I mean, I've experienced exactly what you're saying and you tend to blame or point fingers at an area or a country, but that might be where the animal comes from and is being poached. But there are so many other parts of the chain. You know, there, You know, the illegal wildlife trade is, is so huge that there are other parts of the chain all over the world. So it's not just the poachers on the ground necessarily, even though that is awful, but there are all sorts of other people involved all over the place. And you're right. I mean, are the scales, are they made out of like keratin? Is it the same kind of material as your nails or?
0: Yes. yes. Yeah. So it's the similar thing with rhino horn. Um, things that, because they have gone down in myth and recipes that have been passed down through generations as having these properties that aren't actually there for mm-hmm. sci- in scientific analysis aren't there, mm-hmm. but they have this um, this kind of proof. And there's stories that you can have a look Not a pangolin related story, but if you look at things like rhino horn, for example, the way that they prove that this is magic and working to people is they will take bits of rhino horn and because it's very absorbent, what they can do is soak it in liquids that contain things like dissolved Viagra. Mm -hmm. And if you feed it to somebody, they think it must it must work. It must be this wonderful drug that does things. But it's it's not the case. And Yeah. yeah, it's something that it's an almost impossible problem to solve because there is all of these stages along the way but are things that we can do to minimize it so making yourself kind of aware of these issues um, Mm. is one thing and talking about them and also reflecting on your own actions and what you're doing to support different charities that are trying to combat this or also different things that you do in your day-to-day life you might not think buying a a dog or a reptile in the UK, for example, from a certain buyer would affect a pet trade or trafficking or these things. But there are certain animals or certain reptiles or certain things that shouldn't really be in the UK. And if you follow the chains, a lot of the time they, they come back to the same issues. Um, even things like I've spoken to somebody who deals with human trafficking in, as part of the podcast. And if you look at the routes that these things take, these traffickers don't care what they're trafficking. They will traffic anything, anywhere, as long as it makes them a profit. Mm -hmm. so they could be trafficking pangolin they could be trafficking children they don't mind as long as it gets them profit so that's something else to be aware of that if you're if you're noticing things that are unusual that might have to do with another form of trafficking if you point that out to somebody or point that out to the police or something it can affect a whole bunch of other things down the line as well
1: yeah you mentioned there that you know obviously the the scales of the pangolin i guess have been believed as you say throughout Cultural history to have certain properties whether it's an aphrodisiac or I don't know I imagine there's all sorts of different things that they people believe that they cure um and that's a kind of historical myth or story as you say but it's developed now I think in modern times I imagine much more into a money-making exercise as you say like the illegal I mean the illegal wildlife trade is third in the world after you know drug smuggling and weaponry you know in arms so it's it's a huge well that was what it was a few years ago when I was teaching people about it <laughs> might be up there now but it's such a huge business and as you say it's also quite often linked to a lot of other a lot of other illegal goings on so it's it's a shame but it, there's so many species as you say that even some that aren't endangered that are being affected by it and that's with the example of the pangolin that's proving you know that's what's causing their numbers to decrease in the wild because they're just I mean do we know do we know how many there are left are there kind of estimates about their populations or
0: Um, I think the problem with getting estimates is they are so few and far between and kind of all over the place and these populations are becoming fragmented and moving around and it's a very hard thing to keep track of especially with an animal that is elusive and goes against kind of convention in a way that it, it can hide itself it can keep itself to itself as much as it can and makes it hard to track unless you're following it overnight in the bush through sharp things over hills down burrows all sorts of adventures that it's very hard to keep track of at the moment three species i believe are critically endangered three are endangered and two are vulnerable mm. but then even the vulnerable species for example chemic pangolin I keep mentioning that one because that is the one that I spoke about the most <laughs> in my discussions with people but in states like Namibia it's kind of a touch and go situation where they're decreasing in number and these issues are happening but across the whole range they're cl- classified as vulnerable because they still meet certain conditions so it's an awkward thing to say oh this animal is vulnerable because then it I think it puts the brakes on a little bit for some people with kind mm-hmm. of a why are we focusing on it when actually just because something is classified as vulnerable doesn't mean that it's really close to being a lot worse than that because it may be vulnerable because there's a number across the world but within if those number are broken up in certain ways it's a it's a huge issue um because they can't meet they can't reproduce they can't do these things
1: yeah yeah i can imagine like even just i, I mean the only way we know if, an, if a species is you know as you say critically endangered is that people get the opportunity to do the research and to study them and if you I mean, you pointed that out. I hadn't really thought of it like that. I suppose that they are—they're difficult to find. They're difficult to study, and that also will mean that I imagine if the numbers are less and they're more spread out, it's difficult for them to breed, you know, and find mates and things like that. And as you pointed out, they're so easy to just pick up and 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 take and poach that I imagine there'll be a lot of people in the areas that they live that that do and um, know that they can make money out of them and stuff. But I think that's well—that's the point I wanted to bring up is. I think it's important when for me whenever i'm talking about anything to do with the illegal wildlife trade it is important to kind of remind people or remind listeners that in the areas where these animals live you know people have got quite a lot of in some areas they've got quite a lot of worries they've got bigger things to worry about maybe than pangolins and the illegal wildlife trade i mean they're in some areas as i imagine there's a lot of poverty there's there are kind of wars going on and things like that so is that kind of true in the case of the pangolin and the in the regions that they live in? Are, are the people just going to kind of do whatever they can to make money or?
0: I think there's growing interest. So one of the people I interviewed, um, Kelsey Prediger, she is working in the movie trying to work with communities to kind of build this knowledge and build this kind of understanding of them because if it comes down to it, if it's you, your family or a pangolin, as hard as it is for somebody like me to say, because I love conservation, I love these animals. It's going to be the pangolin every time that gets the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. So there are people working to kind of build this community knowledge about actually these can be very important animals. So teaching people that they're ecosystem engineers, that they are do have this important role to play kind of helps build this up if people understand well they eat the termites that destroy your crop they dig burrows which encourage the plant regeneration and the kind of soil restoration because they turn things over it helps to build this knowledge and deconstruct these either myths that surround them of being not that important or raise awareness in a way that makes people actively want to to protect them there are um, these myths as well that surround them that don't help so While there's the aspect, as we were talking about, about kind of selling them to feed the family, there's also the traditional aspects on the ground in terms of using them for traditional ceremonies. So, for example, there is groups in Africa that see it as an omen for rains. So if a pangolin turns up, they will take it back to their village and they will use it um, in traditional ceremonies to determine if there's going to be rain. And then a lot of the time, the end of those traditional ceremonies is not, oh, we'll let the pangolin go because we've used it for the, the traditional ceremonies. They say, well, the gods have sent us this pangolin. We need to give it back to the gods. So they'll bury it sometimes still alive or all of these kind of cruel, what we would picture as cruel, but are part of their traditional ceremonies Um well. So it's about helping educate people in a way that doesn't tell them they can't do these things because they're their traditional practices and religions, but encouraging them to say, these are the kind of facts that we know about the animal. Obviously, it's up to you to keep these things going, whether you're going to keep doing those religious ceremonies or not. But just be aware, this is what's going on, and make your choices to to what you're doing. So, yeah, yeah. it's all about educating people in the in the field and giving them the option then of of how they're going to act.
1: Yeah, well, I mean well, that you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's all about. I'm biased, obviously, because that's my background, but it is all about education, really. Whether that's people like us back here in Scotland or it's the people living around them, because quite often in my experience the people that are living around certain species don't know you know they don't realize how endangered they are maybe globally and and what's going on in other parts of the world they just know what's happening in their area and and quite and they know the environment around them better than anyone so a lot of charities and conservation projects are working with obviously the local people working with the communities who who are around them because at the end of the day they're the ones that are that are going to protect them. And I guess that the same can be said, hopefully, for the areas of the world who who are using them as kind of, if they are using pangolin scales as traditional medicine or anything like that, it's all about education as well, just talking about alternatives and, and whether it actually scientifically has been proven to to work or have any benefits at all. But I mean, it's easy for us to say So I always say that it's easy for me to say he's sitting here in Scotland. Oh, penguins are cute and, we, and they're endangered. We need to protect them. But it's a wee bit more complicated than that, obviously, in the areas that they live. Why do you think people don't know that much about them? Do you think it's because they're not cute and fluffy or... I feel this, as you said earlier on, I feel that people don't really know what they are or know anything about them. And hopefully that'll change in the next few years.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's hard to say exactly, because it's kind of a, it's the world's most trafficked mammal. Like the, it, They should be the poster child for all of these things, for all of these different views. Mm-hmm. They should be the ones up there. And I think it certainly, start, I've noticed a change now in that you see a lot of these adoption packs coming up for pangolin where they've started to replace things like polar bears, elephants, these kind of charismatic megafauna. I don't know whether it's the conservation sector's tendency to focus on these big species that people already know that is the issue but there's certainly Mm -hmm. an element I would say of that is that people want to see rhinos so the conservation sector shows them rhinos whereas if you show Mm -hmm. something new and interesting it might catch on so I think there's that element of you don't see them in the kind of always on the kind of posters and adverts. I also think there's the issue of growing up, we were never exposed to pangolins in zoos. We were never exposed to them in these kind of documentaries, hugely. Um, They can't be kept in zoos well. They just, they have to eat huge amounts of insects. They travel quite a lot. They dig burrows, they do all these things that just don't always function well in a zoo environment. So a lot of people here certainly aren't familiar with them. I haven't seen much pop up. I think it is starting to change and I hope it is starting to change with, while COVID-19, certainly hasn't helped a lot of things I think it did bring the pangolin to the focus of a lot of people and the wildlife trade to a lot of people so hopefully people's opinions will start to change and will start to shift and this awareness will grow but um yeah I can't say I can't say for certain so as but I will keep working until every single person in my life can give me a brief description of some kind of issue related to pangolin even if I can't describe <laughs> what they look like well myself I want people to kind of have an idea.
1: Yeah, you're right, though. You're right. And, and as you say, I mean, there's obviously trying to think of positives to come from the last year in COVID. One of them is, a, I think, a lot of people who didn't maybe know before are learning a great deal more about how close we are to nature and to zoonotic diseases and, and viruses and, and and how our kind of unhealthy relationship with the planet is, is causing these problems. and. I do remember way back in the beginning a lot of stuff on the news about the pangolin and hopefully that wasn't a negative thing to them. Hopefully people weren't going out and you know killing pangolins because they thought they were spreading COVID. But I think it's turned around now and it seems to be more that it's just illustrating how, how endangered they are, as you say. Um, and the illegal wildlife trade in general, again, people I've spoken to in Britain might not realise quite how much stuff comes into Britain, you know, through airports and stuff as well. I mean, we both obviously have worked in in zoological collections and we know that zoological collections can go to an airport and and kind of borrow loads of objects that have come through customs to use and educational sessions and things like that. We've both done that before. And there's so much stuff that comes through even, you know, Scottish airports that I think people just don't realise it's trying to be kind of smuggled through. So even though we are maybe far away from where pangolins naturally live um, and there's no doubt I'm sure Britain's still got a part to play in it all
0: I think they are not a huge issue here as we're aware but then turn the lens back on yourself before we start picking apart everybody else let's have a think about mm. conservation in the UK how many large species do you know in the UK are still around that were here thousand years ago two thousand years ago there's not that many There's a lot of things that we're seeing trickle away from the UK, kind of silently. And then there's big charismatic species that have been gone for years and years. Things like wolves, bison, which are being reintroduced. Or there's proposals to reintroduce them now, but they're gone. Before you start kind of criticising everybody else, take a look back on yourself. To do with trafficking, Mm -hmm. Scotland has hundreds of unmanned ports around its shores have a think about what might be going on at those ports and where these things might be ending up. Um mm-hmm. there's a really interesting interview for my series um with Chris Lusk who is an expert on trafficking kind of is running a um, group of people researching trafficking in Scotland. She talked a lot about these things that we go about our day to day lives and don't think about the fact that if we go to get our haircut for example at a a salon and it's ridiculously cheap or somebody gets their nails done for ridiculously cheap or their car washed for ridiculously cheap and they think the people who are working there don't look particularly well treated by the management they don't look like they are kind of enjoying what they're doing they might not be there of their own accord so there's all these things that kind of are going on to do with trafficking and to do with conservation and all these other issues in the UK that mm-hmm. we don't often think about but we're very happy to criticize other people so yeah yeah um, Kind of look back on yourselves and think about these things and what you can do within your own setting and then also think about before you go out there and start openly pointing fingers
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah what can we do in scotland yeah no totally that's a fair enough point um and as you say we do have so many species that are disappearing in our own backyard um but it's sort of the classic it's the classic cliche isn't it that people kind of find, seem to find exotic Creatures from faraway lands more interesting, but um, but we we still we can still bring it back to what we've got here in Scotland as well. But going back to the pangolins, for example, obviously as they are the most trafficked mammal in the world, what can people do that are listening to to help out? I mean, and how can they support your work or or support some of the charities that you've that you've worked with? I would say the biggest thing that came
0: away from producing my podcast series was awareness. Make yourself aware. Make those around you aware. If you have the money, support a charity like WWF, like, or research smaller charities as well that kind of are doing these works within country as well as globally. Do these kind of things that they sound so simple, but they so they're really, they're obvious, but just do them because not enough people do do them and not enough Mm. people do go and read up. If you want to learn more about the pangolin, I have my podcast series, to plug that, um, I have my podcast series, six episodes, um, it is The Plight of the Pangolin, currently. Um, We are going to be changing, for season two, we will be changing name to Pangolin, the conservation podcast, because we're going to be focusing on broader issues of conservation, all of these other unrelated, underappreciated issues that should be brought to people's attention. So we'll be looking at some of those in season two. But for now, you Google Pangolin, the conservation podcast, or Plight of the Pangolin, it should come up. Make yourself aware learn these things. It doesn't take a lot to read an online article, go onto a reliable website, read the news, educate yourselves and support the work that's going on around the world to to help these these animals. It's an awkward one because if we were talking about seafood, for example, sea species, you could say cut down your seafood diet. Mm -hmm. Or if you were talking about um, going vegetarian, if there's certain areas of the world where going vegetarian would help. Mm -hmm. This one is a more complicated issue because a lot of it is trafficking. So yeah just make sure to make yourself aware support the charities doing their important work that would be kind of my main advice
1: yeah Well, no, i'll obviously share all the the podcast and all the information and stuff about it when i when I post this out but but you're right i mean there are so many amazing organizations already working with Panglins and, and doing the work so just if you can if the least you can do is maybe support them and and contribute in some way then then that would be greatly appreciated i'm sure by them and finally um the last thing I like to kind of ask everyone on the podcast is you're obviously still a young and let's be honest you're quite early on in your career um but what advice would you give to anyone wanting to get into conservation and what have you kind of learned along the way about that
0: so yeah so for anyone who can't see my youthful youthful (laughs) um at the moment I yes I'm only 23 so I am a baby but there are, I would say, that makes me kind of well-equipped in some ways to tell you, especially if you're younger than me, or actually I suppose this applies to anyone, this is hard work, or this is work where you feel like you're kind of fighting the same battle every day. I described it yesterday to someone as the story of the Hydra from Greek myth. You feel like you cut off one head, and two more grow back in its place, and it Mm. does feel sometimes that you're kind of fighting these battles, and fight. but if you keep going and you keep pushing, it all makes it worth it, and you kind of have to think about If you're not doing it, who is doing it? Um, And if if you can't think of people, it's kind of worrying. So you have to keep pushing. You have to keep fighting. But on that same note, I would say, while you're interested in conservation, if you're listening to this, you're probably already interested in conservation. So my other piece of advice would be, don't, because your friends don't have an interest in animals, not talk about them. Just because your friends don't seem to want to talk about the destruction of the Amazon or the pangolin or dolphins or whales or polar bears or elephants don't shut up keep talking at them because if you talk at them and you explain these things one day you'll get through to them and one day they might change and one day they might want to help you in this fight keep our world a lot healthier so yeah my piece of advice would be keep going and as many times as people might look at you like be quiet don't be quiet, because if you're quiet, that's when the problem just gets worse. Than talking.
1: <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. And I, I, I joked in your young one, but I know you've obviously had lots of cool experience so far. I've known you since you were a younger one. So um, so you've had lots of amazing experience so far and, and you're doing a really good job with the, with the play of the pangolin. So it's it's a cool thing for people to tune in and listen to. Um, but we have run out of time unfortunately jack so thank you so much for for joining us today Um, it's been really lovely to chat to you and thanks for teaching us all about pangolins
0: no problem and yes as i say the plight of the pangolin season two we're on twitter at pangolin podcast thank you